This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where each week we bring you conversations and lectures from our public programs, live events, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Stephen Johnson and CIIS professor Carolyn Cook consider how to make decisions, drawing lessons from cognitive science, social psychology, military strategy, and great works of literature. This event was recorded on September 12, 2018, in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. So I'd just like to situate the uh, kind of terms of the conversation for this evening. Um, Stephen's book is about decision theory, how people make complex decisions with asymmetrical variables and all kinds of unknowns. The book is full of wildly diverse examples, and we're going to talk about some of them, uh, from how the CIA decided how and when to strike Osama bin Laden's compound at Abbottabad, um, to how Google calculated risk magnitudes for the self-driving car in a mathematical table of bad events that serves as the car's moral compass. The book also shows how to approach difficult decisions as opportunities for creative and even radical thinking. And best of all, it has examples of why great novels are among the best teachers of how human beings think and make choices. And it offers examples of the cosmic decisions that lie before us. Stephen, would you start us off with a kind of simple decision example, um, maybe the Darwin example? Right, yeah, it's fun, it's, it's fun hearing all those different stories um, thrown together. I think it is the only book <coughs> published in the history of the world that contains an extensive discussion of the Bin Laden raid and, and Middlemarch all in one book. It's not, those two things have never been brought together before. Probably never again, for good reason, probably. Um, so yeah, in, at the beginning of the book, I, I talk about this um, amazing <laughs> section from Darwin's, uh, what are generally his scientific notebooks, his journals, um, which are amazing documents. And actually, this is the second time I've written about them. They show up in my book, Where Good Ideas Come From, as well. Um, and in the journals that are still around, you can see them at Cambridge University, um, They, the the collection of notes that he took in 1838, which is right when he is coming up with the theory of natural selection, right? He's stumbling across, wrestling with the most important scientific idea probably of the 19th century. And, and, the, and the pages are filled with all these observations left over from the Voyage of the Beagle and all these other things. And But there's this one page where he starts wrestling with this other really complicated question, um, which is existential as well, but less scientific, which is, should I get married? And he basically creates what is effectively a pros and cons list. Um, he, he divides the page into two columns, one of which is not marry and one of which is marry. And then he just kind of writes down the attributes for, for each of the different paths in front of him. And they're very funny. They're a little bit dated. Um, he has, for instance, on the side of not marry, um, one of the things that he likes about that option is that he will continue to have the clever conversation of men in clubs. Like that's one of the things that he's <laughs> sad to give up allegedly if he gets married. And But he has more traditional ones. Like he says, you know, children on the side of uh, if it please God, which is interesting that he says that because, of course, he became an atheist. Um, 
And he talks about a constant companion, things you would expect. But he also has one line um, that hasn't aged well, which he, he says, in favor of marriage, he says, an object to be beloved better than a dog anyway, is what he says. So, <laughs> you know, man of his times, I suppose. But um, so what, what I find so interesting about this is the, the, the pros and cons list actually is a technique, um, actually dates back to Ben Franklin, um, who, who wrote about it in a letter to Joseph Priestley, who weirdly was the hero of a book I wrote many years ago called The Invention of Air, which maybe some of you read. Um, and Priestley and Franklin were really good friends. And, and at one point, Priestley has this complicated decision in his life. And he decides to write Franklin for advice, which is great. You're like, I have a tough choice. I better write Ben Franklin to get some advice on this. It's a nice option to have. Um, and so he writes his letter. And Franklin writes back. And he says, listen, I can't give you the answer to your dilemma, but I can tell you the technique that I use. And here's my technique. I divide up into two columns. And I put the pros and the cons. And it's one of the great things I was saying this on Twitter the other day that it's like a defining thing about American culture as society is that one of our founding fathers was basically a pioneering self-help author, basically. Like, <laughs> like, That's what Franklin was on yeah, some level. Yeah, so it's like yeah, built into yeah, our kind of yeah. self-improvement kind of ethos in this culture that Franklin set that standard. So, but anyway, those two stories, you know, I had at the very beginning when I was starting to think about writing this book many years ago, and we can talk about that delay. Um, but what I thought was striking about them is that the pros and cons list is for most of us like the one technique that most of us have for making a complicated decision in life. Um, when you really have a, a ch you're at a challenging crossroads, whether it's a personal thing or a professional choice that you're making or a social choice. The, the overwhelming majority of us have just learned, you know, a, a pretty simple technique that basically has been stagnant for 200 years, 250 years since, you know, Priestley wrote that letter in 1771 or something like that. And in fact, it turns out that there are a lot of a, a lot of other tools that are out there and that the kind of the science of decision theory or whatever you want to call it has actually advanced a lot, particularly over the last 30 or 40 years. And and there are a lot more kind of techniques that we can use um, and, and ways we can think about what happens when we make a really complex choice. And so that was what got me interested. And the other thing I'll just say is that it, it, it seemed to me that there had been a lot of books written about choices and decisions, but they were disproportionately focused on gut decisions and, in, you know, instinctual decisions like blank and thinking fast and slow, you know, we talk about system one brain, system two brain, the, the system one brain, the, the instinctual brain had gotten a, a lot of attention. And, and I ate that stuff up. It was fascinating. And it's important to understand. But the deliberative part of the brain, the process of really weighing a decision and thinking slowly, is also something we need to understand. And so that's, that's how I got to writing this book. Um, yeah, I'm, I, I, I wanted to ask you why you think decision making is a science and as a science how can it include um, some of the techniques that you talk about uh, like mulling the brain's capacity to mull or the way we can make a gut decision and how decisions can either be quantified and sometimes they are and you describe it in amazing uh, detail around the Google car and risk assessment, very mathematical, and yet also include these other variables. Um, 
you also talk about well you you also talk about the varieties of unknowns yeah. and um, so there's a science element there but could you talk about why decision making is a science yeah I I I really wrestled with it a lot when I was writing the book because the, the it is in the nature of a truly complex kind of long-term decision that it's unique right in the book I kind of you know it's like fingerprints or snowflakes right everyone is different and um, that's what makes them hard, right? It's like this con particular configuration of factors and uh, mixed objectives or values and you know future events, um, which are very hard to predict. That that convergence has never happened before, and it will never happen again. And so, when you think about writing a book that is in part, I mean, part of it is a tour and. Uh, it's filled with stories and hopefully you learn kind of history of science and in some cases of literature, but hopefully it's useful, right? I mean, I wanted to write a book that people would find useful and applicable, but there is this, you know, I also felt a certain level of humility in saying to my reader, I know nothing about you by definition, you know, I haven't met you and here I am giving you advice about what you, what you should do in this complicated crossroads in your life. And that seems kind of audacious, right? And I, I honestly almost, didn't write the book because of that. Like I took that very seriously, but what I ultimately came down to was that I didn't really care. No, was that <laughs> <laughs> that I was under contract and I had to write the book. No, was that the the strategies that are in the book that are that are backed by the ones that come out of scientific fields that are backed by empirical research and studies are really all variations of trying to get you to see the the unique constellation of the choice in front of you as clearly as possible and to avoid the gut instinctual initial assessment um, or the the narrowing that you get in, in kind of groupthink or confirmation bias or all these different things so so they're they're tricks of the mind to get you to really get outside of your preconceptions about the problem and that and that those tricks work no matter what the problem is right they allow you to see it um, in a fresh way there's a great quote one of my favorite quotes in the book from um, Thomas Schelling the Nobel laureate kind of economist game theorist whatever a lot dabbled in a lot of different things he um, he has a quote or something like um, the one thing that a person cannot do, no matter how brilliant they are and how heroic their imagination is, is write a list of things that would never occur to them. <laughs> right? And like that is a very kind of Zen kind of idea, right? And and in a sense, what this book is is, is, is a way of trying to like trick your brain into com coming up with a list of things that would never have occurred to you. Like the stuff that you didn't see initially when you were confronting the choice. Here's it. And so there are a lot of experiments pointed to in the book, you know, examples of places where they they look at group decision making with mock juries and they, you know, present them with evidence and there is in fact a correct answer, but you have to be creative in understanding the evidence and they test different compositions of juries or they look at uh, kind of long studies of business decisions um, and the techniques that were used to make those decisions and then the ultimate outcomes. So those decisions. so like a lot of different studies that then suggest approaches that you can take. Um, it's not a science the way, you know, physics is a science, right? Um, it's always going to have a level of art to it. And that's one of the reasons why I do spend practically an entire chapter talking about the novel and, and the kind of creative side of decision making. But there, but I do think, using science to help you see the problem more clearly is something that, that we can all benefit from. And one of the ways that um, uh, people do that, uh, you describe really beautifully, is in the charrette. 
and this this kind of method for group decision making that understands the power of diverse perspectives. Could you explain that? So this is a big theme that runs through the book. It's actually a big theme of a lot of my work about innovation as well, because it's true of innovation too. Um, there is one of the key recurring findings of, of the research that I talk about is that diverse groups um, are smarter and more original at solving problems or coming up with com you know, solutions to complex decisions than homogeneous groups. Um, and that diversity comes in a lot of different forms. It's gender diversity, it's racial diversity, it's um, cognitive diversity and professional expertise, um, intellectual diversity. Um, and it's sometimes Scott Page is one of the people associated with this. He's got a great slogan. He just it's the diversity trumps ability theory, right? You know, if you get a bunch of you know high IQ individuals who are all like-minded and of similar background and put them in a room and give them creative problems to solve versus a lower IQ group that is more diverse, the diverse group will outperform the allegedly smarter group. Um, and and so part part of what you want to do in in reaching some kind of crossroads in your life or if you're inside an organization and you're trying to wrestle with a complicated problem is to make sure you do have a diverse group of people who are consulting on the process, giving you feedback. Sometimes there's one interesting piece of advice is to, is to consult with them separately. Um, that there is a tendency, you're always battling kind of the weird group dynamics when you have um, people in a room together and sometimes that can go well, sometimes it cannot. And you're trying to extract all that extra information that those diverse perspectives are going to bring to the problem. Um, and sometimes in a, in a room, th those interesting new perspectives can get silenced by the group dynamics. So if you talk to them separately. But the, but the other thing that is so fascinating about this research that I, that I love is um, two things, really. In, in a lot of these different studies where they saw this kind of diversity bonus, um, they, the expectation was that the reason why that was happening is because the if you have a group of insiders who are all the same and you bring in some outsiders who are different right add to the diversity um the assumption was the outsiders have new information that the insiders didn't have and thus they make the group smarter because they've added to the pool of information in the in the collective what it turns out is that's partially true but it also is true that just the presence of these people who are outsiders actually makes the insiders realize that they have other information that they were sitting on that they didn't have kind of access to for some reason. And they actually get more original and creative as well. Um, and so just being around people who are different from you, you know, kind of unlocks the possibilities. And the other interesting thing is that the diverse groups were more likely to be right than the less diverse groups. And they were also more likely to be less certain that they were right. So there was an increase in accuracy and an increase in uncertainty, which I think is really interesting. They, they became more humble, uh, in a sense, about their answer, even though their answer was getting better. Um, so, but all of this is is a really important point, I think, in a, that's why I'm saying it. Um, <laughs> it's fascinating, fascinating thing I'm telling you. Um, that when we think about it in the political conversation, I know there's this thing, I'm sure some of you saw that Tucker Carlson said on, Fox the other night where he was like, where, show me a situation where in some group or institution, like adding diversity, like improved the organization and like made it more cohesive, you know, what, where is that? And I was just sitting there, what, but actually there is decades of scientific research that shows this is true, that the groups are made better by diversity. And so when we think about diversity in positions of power, it's important to 
to remind people that it's not just about equality of representation and access and having role models and you know, and, and social tolerance, all of which are really important values. But it's also those elected officials in that room that are all that all look the same are just going to be worse at making the complicated decisions that they have to make as leaders. That's the other reason why we want to have diversity in boardrooms or in the White House and so on. So that's what I have to say about that. Um, I think a good example from the book of that kind of decision making is um, the story of the elevated train in New York mm. and the decade that the city spent fighting with Conrail about who was going to pay to take it down, the millions and millions of dollars and this ugly fight about who's going to take down this dangerous eyesore, you know, you or us, yeah. this or that. And then what happened? Well, I'll just back up one second. That Actually, one of the kind of simplest um, kind of frameworks that I talk about in the book that that seems like it's I, I've, I've seen a lot of people picking it up on social media and talking about it so I thought I'd share it because it's what this story is about on some level is this this research from this guy named Paul Nutt Professor Nutt which I really like he's like a character from Clue um, and he's the guy who did this these longitudinal kind of epic studies of business decisions and, and how they worked out and he looked at um, hundreds of decisions and looked at the technique that was used to kind of make the choice and then looked at the outcome, like went back and figured out how did it, two years later, five years later, did this work out or not, whatever. And what he found, and this is just, just a very basic idea, but I think it's, it's a kind of powerful one, that um, in those decisions, uh, most people did not have a stage in the early stages of the decision, I call this the mapping stage in the book, where they actively sought out other options to put on the table. So most people just looked at one kind of binary choice, like we not calls like a, a whether or not decision, like should I do this or not? Should we tear down this um, uh, elevated rail line or not? And, and those decisions, whether or not decisions, where there was no attempt to kind of very diversify the, uh, the, the options, were overwhelmingly failures, something like 29% of them were deemed successful after that. But decisions where people actively took an early stage um, where they said, before we make this choice, let's let's see if there are other things beside option A. Like, is there an option B, you know, and an option C? And those decisions then were much more likely to turn out to be successful, even if they ended up choosing option A after all. They, they, were un they understood the nature of the problem better. And so... That, that changing, uh, that basic little algorithm of like turn a whether or not into a which one decision is, is, is something that I think is really useful. In the case of the elevated rail line, right, this was, I mean, you all probably know where this is going. It's an old abandoned industrial rail line that had been basically uh, not used since 1980 as Manhattan got less and less industrial on the west side and the shipyards along the Hudson had died many decades before. And so for a decade, for two decades, it was a debate about whether it should be torn down, and then a bunch of outsiders, in a sense, people who were not part of the urban planning authorities and not part of Conrail, who owned the tracks, and you know, not part of the people who were official decision makers, as we say about these things, began to think, you know, this 
Have you been up there on the top of this rally? It's kind of cool up there. There are all these wildflowers growing, and it's a neat vista, and, you know, it's covered with graffiti right now, but it's pretty cool. You can and smoke weed up there. You can smoke weed up there, which was hard to do in 1995. <laughs> And they started, and they, one of them was a writer, one of them was an artist, one of them was a photographer who photographed some of these images. And they began to make an argument that this elevated rail line, the High Line, should become a park. And that became, uh, in the, about 10 years ago or so, High Line Park, which is you know, one of the most celebrated new urban parks in the world. Um, and, and one of the things, you know, this is partially a book about long-term decision making. And it starts actually with another story about an urban park in New York that didn't happen. When when you get the urban parks right, um, you know when you build Central Park, when you build Prospect Park, and probably the High Line Park, um, those can be assets that last for I mean, Golden Gate Park here, right? That that you know Golden Gate Park will probably be here in 500 years, right? Only the street grid um, in cities is more durable in terms of the long view, and so you're able, you know, when you get those choices right, and when you save something. Once you tear, you know, once you tear down the elevated rail line, no one 50 years from now is going to be like, we should build that rail line again. That was cool. That would have been a good park. So so getting those decisions right um, can be a, you know, a 500 year success story. Um, and it was because they looked at another option and because they had a, a more diverse range of people suggesting what should be there. There's a lot of planning in the book. That's another theme that runs through it, like urban planning, sustainability, long-term thinking. Because we have part of the argument is we should be we have reason for optimism about these things. Like if you look at um, Spur here in San Francisco, just did this like 50-year scenario plan for the Bay Area. Like looked at four different kind of models of what would happen in the Bay Area, and thinking about planning and development and all the different options. And it's just. You know, people are really good at that kind of thinking now. And it was not a skill that people had 100 years ago or 200 years ago. Well, even the example of Darwin with his pro and con list, um, uh, the idea of taking away, you know, or, or the, the pro and con list suggests that there's choice A or choice B. And you, you say in your book that, you know, today we could say, well, we could just live together, yeah. you know. And, and uh, another example is um, President Obama, who you said... Uh, uh, was famous for sort of listening to option A and option B as they were presented to him and choosing option C, which <laughs> yeah. no one had thought of. Yeah. yeah. And they, one of the reasons why I talked about the the, the raid um, on Abbottabad and, and the killing of bin Laden, um, which was... <laughs> It came in the kind of the second draft of the book, actually. The first draft was very heavy on the Middle March and the Darwin, and it was just like, <laughs> I just felt like I was doing a dissertation on 19th century culture. That wasn't what people were necessarily going to be expecting to buy, so I needed a more contemporary story. Um, but what really sparked my interest in it is that what the, the, the decision process that led to the raid, which was really a two-part process, right? It started with who is this mysterious person in this compound and is he Osama bin Laden? And then if we believe that it is bin Laden, what should we do? Like, what is the approach we should make? And it was a nine month process and they very deliberately thought of it as a process and very consciously used a lot of the tools that I talk about in the book. Um, 
in part because they did not want to, they were trying to learn from the mistakes of past administrations from WMD on, on, in, in the Iraq war, from Bay of Pigs and things like that. Cases where there was kind of groupthink mistakes, where you got this situation where everybody got convinced that they had the right answer and they charged ahead and it turned out to be wrong. And so they did all these exercises. And a lot of the, a lot of the, the, that process is in challenging your assumptions, right? They, every step of the way, they'd be like, people would get confident that it was bin Laden. And so, Panetta or McRaven would would say, okay, here's your task. You need to come up with 30 explanations for why this guy is not Osama bin Laden. You know, make up make up narratives um, to explain uh, why this guy isn't. Just to force ourselves to make sure we're not making the the right choice. And and they also we will talk about this a little bit more. They also then in the kind of predicting stage, which is the second kind of stage I talk about in the book, where you're like forecasting what the outcomes are going to be if you do choose path A or path path B and or path P and C. And they they went out of their way to really think about negative outcomes. Like what if this goes terribly wrong? Um, you know, how could it go wrong? Like what are the many ways in which that this could go wrong? And one of the things that they thought about once they were thinking about doing this kind of moonlit raid um, with the choppers through uh, Pakistani airspace without telling the Pakistanis that they they were they were concerned that the the Pakistani government who were allegedly their kind of allies in the war particularly in the war in Iraq um, would get so angered by this that they would kick them out of the air and land space and they would be unable to have the kind of supply routes that they were using um, to get supplies into Afghanistan and so two months before the bin Laden raid, they announced that they were opening up and kind of expanding what they call the northern distribution route um, to get uh, supplies basically through Russia and Uzbekistan or something like that into uh, Afghanistan. And no one thought anything about it. They were just like, oh, well, it's just a logistic thing. But it was actually they were preempting this reaction because they were afraid that might be kind of a downstream consequence. So the level in which they like worked through this problem and and what ends up happening in the culture is that we celebrate you know or at least focus on the drama of the raid itself right that's and it is a very dramatic thing and it has a lot of daring and you know military might and all these things but the decision process that actually led into it is the more important thing or just as important and we don't tell that kind of slow motion story as much as we should because that that's and that's the part of it that we can actually learn from like pro, i'm just wagering that none of us will actually like do a moonlit raid by a helicopter in a foreign country maybe i'm wrong but that the the you know that story is just an interesting story it's not applicable but the story of how that decision actually was made i think is applicable and there's a wonderful detail at the end about um you know having thought through as many possible oh, yeah. outcomes. Uh, there's one one minor detail that's forgotten. They they you know they had a big thing about um, making sure they were able to identify Bin Laden um, and and convincingly show that it was Bin Laden. And one Bin Laden was very tall. I think he was six, six four. four. Yeah, and so they wanted to measure his height. And that was one of the variables that they could show that it was Bin Laden. And they forgot to include a tape measure bring a tape measure and so they ended up <clears throat> it was like the one thing that they and he's lying kind of there dead. design there yeah. yeah so they had another guy who was six four who was around kind of lie down next to him so they could say he's six four we know that so this guy is this this dead person is six four as well and and so when in the kind of ceremony for mcgrave and the guy who 
by the way, who just kind of renounced his security clearance in protest um, of the Trump administration. He, uh, he, when they kind of, the ceremony kind of honoring him, they gave, they mounted a tape measure onto a little plaque. (laughs) (laughs) This is just a like tweak of like the one thing you forgot. Uh, Anyway. Well, that example is so filled with, you know, military precision and um, a calculus that, you know, the military has specialized tools for, but it also includes a lot of intuitive uh, decision making and decision making based on, as you say, prior experiences of um, awfulness. And I think, again, it comes back to this idea of our our decisions. uh, choices that we make based on real information, true information, and how how well can we know what's true and what's not true. And um, immediately after, maybe in the middle of reading your book, I had a really interesting conversation with my writing partner um, who asked me a question. And um, I went off on a tangent and he said, Carolyn, yes, no, or I don't know. Those are the three choices for this question. And I said, none of the above. I'm a fiction writer, and I dwell in ambiguity. And um, moments later, I read um, uh, your exegesis of George Eliot's Middlemarch, and I wondered if we could veer a little bit to my favorite part of your book, which is um, uh, your literary analysis of, of how literature is essentially um, about human beings making complex decisions. Yeah, I, I, I really, it, it kind of warmed my heart to write that part of the book. Is I, I was a grad student in English literature many, many years ago um, and spent five years in my early 20s reading 19th century novels. And, um, and, and then I ended up writing books about science and technology and the history of medicine and innovation and things like that and and so but I have this you know kind of one body of knowledge and expertise uh, in, in that field and all and a love for it and I it was important to me with this book that it not be purely about science right um, and I'd always felt that the the narratives that I love the most and the novel does this the best but but film and, and theater can do this as well um, were the narratives where you really were brought inside a, a, a choice that a human being is making in a in a complex and tumultuous world, right? And I mean, I mean, this is true of Breaking Bad and The Godfather yeah. as yeah. well as of Middlemarch, yeah. right? When you when you see like, wow, that is a really complicated choice that mm-hmm. this character has to make. And in in Middlemarch, there are a number of them. The, the most famous one that the, the novel kind of pivots around is Dorothea Brooks' decision of whether she should renounce her late husband's fortune to marry the kind of radical political love of her life, Ladislaw, um, or renounce the love of her life and retain the fortune and then do all these good kind of public goods in her community of Middlemarch. Um, and it's this decision that Elliot actually kind of like map it out in in the book, the, the, the layers of um, influence and and subsequent consequence that come out of that decision are just immense. It's a decision with, this is what I call in the book, a full spectrum decision, right? It involves just a whole range of human experience. You've got 
you know, emotional, erotic, romantic attachment to this man. You've got financial pressures. You've got the gossip of the town. You've got her own ambition of making progressive change in the world. Um, you've got historical forces that are making the decision harder for her in some ways and easier for her in other ways. You've got all these different things. And when you have a great novelist, what they do is bring you into that world and show you all those, what I call, what Elliot calls thread-like pressures that weigh on a choice like that. And and what that does, did you want me to yeah. read that? If, if you want to, yeah, that'd this, be great. The, the actual passage from Lydgate's decision, is that what you've got there? Yeah, yeah. There, there's a beautiful example, I think, of yeah. um, the ways oh. that people dwell in ambiguity in their own heads as they I much rather read George Eliot's writing than, than mine, so this is good. So there's another scene where, where the, uh, one of the other major characters, Lydgate, who's a doctor, is trying to decide basically whether to support this one vicar over this other vicar, and he's got his backer who's supporting his hospital. So it's just this constant, very vexed decision. And, and basically, Eliot spends like an entire chapter like in this internal monologue of Lydgate tr trying to weigh this thing. So this is, I'm not going to read you the entire chapter, but just to give you a sense of like what it's like, right? It's it, you don't really need to know the characters to get a sense of this. He did not like frustrating his own best purposes by getting on bad terms with Bulstrode. He did not like voting against Fairbrother and helping to deprive him of function and salary. And the question occurred whether the additional 40 pounds might not leave the vicar free from that ignoble care about winning at cards. Moreover, Lydgate did not like the consciousness that in voting for Tyke, he should be voting on the side obviously convenient for himself. But would the end really be his own convenience? Other people would say so, and would allege that he was currying favor with Bulstrode for the sake of making himself important and getting on in the world. What then? He, for his own part, knew that if his personal prospects simply had been concerned, he would not have cared a rotten nut for the banker's friendship or enmity. What he really cared for was a medium for his work, a vehicle for his ideas. And after all, was he not bound to prefer the object of getting a good hospital, where he could demonstrate the specific distinctions of fever and test therapeutic results before anything else connected with this chaplaincy? For the first time, Lydgate was feeling the hampering, thread-like pressure of small social conditions and their frustrating complexity. And it just goes on and on, but you can just see like this is this is what happens in a complicated choice is that you have all these all these different kind of competing variables. And so the the the, the role that I think that the novel plays in all of this is that we we've seen from other fields where human beings have actually gotten better at making kind of predictions and evaluating things one of the ways in which we've done this technically is by running simulations, right? Like we know a whole, we got Hurricane Florence heading for the Carolinas, right? We know so much more, we're so much better at predicting hurricane paths than we were 20 or 30 years ago because we have these supercomputers can run thousands and thousands of simulations of the various different atmospheric conditions and see the possibilities, uh, see the probabilities of different outcomes, right? And that, that ability, it's called an ensemble simulation, um, is given us a way to forecast the future in a way that we didn't have a kind of superpower to see into the future, even if it's for five days, that can save a thousand lives. And so the question is, like, you can't do that in your own life, right? It would be great if when you were weighing your own personal decision, if you could just run, you know, a hundred simulations of it on the side. Like, someday a future version of The Sims will let you do this, I think, probably. But right now we can't do that. And so, in a way, 
novels are one of the things we have as a substitute for that. Storytelling is what we have as a substitute for that. In that, when we enter into the world of a novel like Middle March, we see we we see the deciding mind at work wrestling with these all these variables, and it kind of gives us. It doesn't give us um, actual wisdom about our own choice again, because that's not in the novel, that's in the real world, but it does give us kind of practice, right? We get to rehearse in seeing somebody else making these choices. It makes us more perceptive. Uh, there's a longstanding interesting connection between reading narrative fiction and empathy. And of course, empathy and other mindedness is crucial in a lot of personal decisions because you're thinking about what the impact of this choice will be on someone else's inner life, emotional life. Um, and so, you know, yeah, you can do all these techniques and, you know, use the strategies that have come out of science, but you, can also spend time in narrative worlds to enhance these faculties. And I think, by the way, this is one of the things I've become, I just wrote a piece about this that's based on the conclusion for, for Medium that just went up yesterday. This is one of the reasons why I've become increasingly convinced that we should be teaching decision-making. Decision-making should be a required class in every high school curriculum, right? I mean, it is such, now that there is an interesting body of work to, to give people practical tools. Um, and it you know it it's no matter what you do with your life whatever career path you take or whether you have a career path at all being able to make complicated decisions when those confront you is a skill you will need every single person will need that skill and it's also one of the things i like about it is it's you know it's such a diverse field right it's not i'm not all about totally utilitarian education right i mean i think that there's a great value in stumbling across things that you didn't know you were interested in. Serendipity this is a big part of my work. But if you took a glass on decision making, there would be cognitive science and neuroscience and psychology and group psychology. There would be the history of ethics, the history of philosophy, the utilitarians. You would learn about, you'd read Middlemarch or you'd read other literature. Um, you know, there's evolutionary biology in it. There's a whole array, all these urban planning, all the things that are in the book. So it would be an incredibly eclectic class. You would have great opportunity to stumble across something. And it's a great bridge between the sciences and the humanities, yeah. right? It's a place where those two can kind of play well together. Um, so so I hope that's one of the things I'm trying to work on a little bit in the next couple of years on the side coming out of this book is thinking about how one would teach a class like that and trying to get it adopted because I think it I think it would be really valuable. I think it would be fantastic for you to teach a class on um, complex decision making yeah. in the novel. You know, yeah. and the novel is sort of a route to um, studying the deciding mind I'm just at work, as you say. Winding my way back to the career path that I was on when I was yeah. twenty-five. I'm yeah. gonna be like yeah. ten years. I'll be like teaching. Yeah. George Eliot 101. <laughs> it, it's so inspiring to hear you talk about literature. It really is. I think you have a, a future. Maybe you'll come here and teach that course. <laughs> well, that's, that's really nice of you to say. I mean, it, it is funny. It's like there's a certain way of writing. So I was a student of Edward Said's um, when I was in grad school who wrote Orientalism and Culture and Imperialism. And Said had a certain way of writing about literature and connecting it to current political events and the history of imperialism and, and all these things. And he was a beautiful um prose stylist um, and after I wrote those sections of the of the book I actually realized that I was without thinking of it I was kind of mining that voice that I had so kind of revered when I was 25 when I was working with Said and 
And then it kind of put away because I didn't really write about literature in that context at all for a long kind of period. But it was sitting there kind of dormant in the back of my head somewhere. And then when I kind of got to it, I was like, oh, this is really fun to write. I don't know what it is. And I realized I'd just been like waiting for 20 years to write in that mode. So I hope to do, I hope to do more of it. But thank you for saying that. That's nice. Um, it also connects to um, some of the, the wonderful um, examples you give of the deciding mind at work and, um, for example, the discovery uh, in the PET scan. Oh, yeah. Of um, yeah. Uh, uh, the default network. What, what happens when you tell people to just have their PET scan and do nothing? Yeah. I love this story. So when, when modern kind of brain imaging first became available to researchers in the early 90s or so with, with things like PET scans and fMRIs. Um, up until that point, the main way we understood about the different parts of the brain and their function was through people who had accidents, basically, like or strokes. And so they, you know, like Phineas Gage, they had a, <laughs> a iron rod through part of their brain and then they became really irritable and you know, really prone to losing all their money at gambling. And so they started to think, well, if you lose this part of your brain, you lose self-control or whatever. But then suddenly, once you could see blood flow to different parts of the brain in real time, you could say, okay, actually do this task, you know, uh, speak, and oh, we see it lighting up in this part of the brain, and so we know that Broca's or whatever is part of the language center of the brain, and this is the visual cortex, and this is what the hippocampus is for, and all this kind of stuff. They, I mean, they knew some of this, but they could see it with much more precision. But to understand that, they had to have a kind of control. They had to have a state where you were doing nothing, and then they would ask you to do the thing that they were looking at, like speaking or doing right. multiplication in your head or whatever it was. And then they would compare the two images, and the difference was point, you know, the, the places where it lit up compared to when you were thinking of nothing um, would tell you what was the active region for running multiplication tables. And when they did this, though, they had this weird thing where they, they would tell people, just sit there, think about nothing, and, and you know, then we'll have you do the task. And it turned out their brains were more active in that state. And they were more active in evolutionarily modern parts of the brain, in, in kind of human-specific parts of the brain. And so in that state, people were burning a lot of energy, and they were doing it in a uniquely human way. And what they realized was that what people were doing was that they were daydreaming. And it, the network of kind of parts of the brain is now called the default network. It's like what people default to when they don't have a task right in front of them. And that what they do, what they, we all know this as human beings, what we do when we have nothing in front of us is go, I wonder next week if I could get that paper done. And then I could, I wonder if I could probably get that raise and then we could maybe buy that house and then we could do that other thing. Or I wonder what's going to happen if I break up with her and then I could do this. You know, we just run these scenarios in our heads. And that turns out to be really computationally intensive for the brain. We're just so good at it that we don't really think about it. But it's actually a lot of work is going on. And that process of daydreaming and mulling is in a sense like the mini interior version of what the novel does in a way. We're running these parallel simulations, imagining future events, thinking about consequences. And that is actually a very powerful instrument, right? It, it, I don't, like a lot of this book is about like deliberation and technique and practice and avoiding your gut. But I also think that that process of mulling and daydreaming is is very valuable and what you want is an informed mull right you want to put expose your mind to all the variables expose your mind to the different options imagine force yourself to imagine negative scenarios like we talked about 
Um, all these exercises are there. And then if you come to the ultimate decision by mulling and daydreaming and, and kind of arriving at the decision in a more intuitive way, once you've done that, that for many people, that may be the way to make the ultimate decision. I have some other techniques in the book that are more kind of like, here's how to make a spreadsheet to help you decide. But for a lot of people, that, that isn't the way to go. It's probably not the way to go for me. Um, and so I think recognizing the power of that default network and just making sure that default network has as much information about the situation, um, it, is, it is an asset that we have. And also, by the way, it's, there's some interesting studies about how much time people spend thinking about the future in in those times there, there was a, a great study of this guy where he kind of buzzed people just in the middle of the day as they were walking around um and would just ask them like what are you thinking about and you know just interrupt people to get a sense of what people were thinking about and they, there's quite a bit of time people were spending thinking about the future and the ability to kind of project forward into the future um is something that human beings seem to do better than any other organisms as far as we know there's a whole field called homo prospectus that thinks that actually our ability to forecast and imagine alternate scenarios in the future may actually be as important as language in terms of our um, kind of uniquely human kind of intellects um, so whole subfield on that that we could dive into it's it's a little bit like the the brain's um own form of um uh, image, you know, uh, envisioning scenarios. Yeah. Um, except that there's an imaginative component, and I, I think your your book offers really an invitation for us to um, kind of remember through reading or not being on social media what we're doing when we're, we think we're doing nothing um, can be really vital in bringing forward information from the subconscious or from experience and intuition. That needs it needs that kind of restful time to open up yeah you know here's one way to phrase it that i didn't quite phrase it in the book but i think it'd be interesting particularly in this context right so this i think it's worth pointing out that there is a, a third space that we need to value between you know the constant twitter facebook instagram screen time right of blah, we all know the problems with that and and kind of the meditation world of you know just think of the mantra and and free your mind of all thought right um the default mode mulling daydreaming is not the the meditation mode it is you are really thinking and you're you're you sometimes can be churning and you know riffing on this one thing you're really stuck with whatever all that kind of stuff um but it's not also screen time it's not all like being bombarded you're you're when you when you have nothing in front of you, this is why you know good ideas come to you in the shower. It's like that one space where your mind roams uninterrupted, generally by other things, and it's really hard to check Twitter in the shower still. Um, <laughs> and they'll fix that, I'm sure. But uh, and and so I think that that is an important kind of lesson just to think about think about it as a parent or or you know, in your own life is like, it, you know, there's a, there's a lot that you can get out of meditative practice and, and that has been shown to have a lot of values empirically. Um, but, but also leaving time for that daydreaming and mulling and mind wandering, which is a different kind of practice, um, I think is, is equally important. Yes. Um, I have so many more questions, but I think it's important that we get to the great questions that are before us as human beings. Um, the book kind of ends with um, 
just a, a, a macro view of the kinds of complex decisions that face humanity right now. And I think just to kind of put them out, um, if people buy the book and develop, you know, uh, methods for um, decision making, um, it would be great to have some big juicy questions to tackle. Yeah. Well, I, you know, I, I tried to, yeah, there's a chapter called the global choice about, you know, big macro questions. And one of the things I was trying to make, one of the points I was trying to make in that chapter is, again, a little bit of the cause for optimism in the sense that when we look at things like climate change, right, we, we there is a default understandable assumption to say like, wow, we are just not capable. We're making these incredibly short-term decisions and we're not capable of thinking the long term and we're, you know, we're making this catastrophic mistake as a planet and all this kind of stuff. And on, on the one hand, that, that, that is, is true. On the other hand, we are being asked to do something with problems like climate change that is very hard for people to do, which is to, uh, you know, imagine scenarios, imagine decisions we make today that will really have full impact, you know, in 20 years or 30 years or 40 years, the big catastrophic crises might be 20 or 30 or 40 years out. And that, and, and the same thing is happening, I talk about this in the book a little bit, with the, with the superintelligence debate about AI, right? You know, it's like, this is a problem that we're worrying about that most people think if it does happen, you know, will we have these superintelligent machines that could pose some threat to us, it's probably 50 years away. And th this is something we have never really tried to do before, right? We, we Human beings built institutions and, and buildings and infrastructure with the idea that they would last for hundreds of years. But the idea of thinking about, hey, here, based on current trends that we have today, we think there is a problem that is going to be really important 30 or 40, 50 years from now. We should think about what we're doing today in order to alter it, right? When, when the car was invented, there was not a big public discussion of, this is interesting, it's nice, but you know, we should think about what it'll be like in 50 years when these become popular and people bid freeways and the inner cities empty out because you have these new suburbs and what is that gonna do for carbon in the atmosphere? No one had, they were just like, that's cool, it's kind of like a carriage, but without the horse. Like That's the way people talked about it. And we have actually gotten better now. Uh, you know, Not all of us, but there, there, there is a lot of thinking when you make decisions that are informed by climate change in what detergent you buy or what car you buy, you're thinking about the con concentration of carbon in the atmosphere in your children and your grandchildren's generation. And people weren't making choices like that even 40 years ago, 50 years ago. And so we're bad at it because it's hard. But actually, in aggregate, we actually are getting better. And we just need to teach those skills and reinforce those skills and, and make them uh, more widespread. All right, thank you all so much for coming. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.